If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you at this point to maybe turn to John chapter 14 and put, just put your finger there, uh, bookmark it or leave it open at that spot. We're going to get there eventually. But as a run-up to that, I want to, uh, the way God just sort of orchestrates things is always very, very cool. And uh, I want to get to the text in a minute, but first I want to share with you um, what happened to me this week. I want to share with you what happened in my life and in the life of our church this week. Um, Last Monday, I had the opportunity to leave uh, out of New York and and go to uh, London, England. Um, It was my first time in London. I I went as part of um, what is uh, sort of a... uh, Acts 1.8, mission philosophy of our church, that we are to be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the other most parts of the earth. So we participate as a church in um, outreach anyway uh, to share the gospel in our personal lives and, and corporately through various things that we do as a church body locally here in central Pennsylvania. Um, we participate in... Uh, as best we can, we participate in the acts of um, uh, church planting and uh, missions uh, on a, a regional and national level. And part of our philosophy is to constantly be asking how, even as a, a, a average-sized church in America, how we can make the most impact possible on the worldwide stage with sharing the gospel. And that could mean a lot of different things. Sometimes it might be simply helping to fund a missionary somewhere in some part of the world. But it also might mean a deeper call of God on our life to participate in short-term missions or to maybe go for a season or maybe God calls you at some point in time to go uh, forever to another land and serve in gospel missions. Well... We had partnered with um, our IMB missionaries in the Eastern European country of Moldova for a couple years. And then uh, those missionaries got pulled out of the nation of Moldova, leaving sort of a, a hole there that our missionaries in Ukraine and Romania had to try and fill in. But it left us without partners in Moldova. So we began to ask the question, okay, where else can we, where else can we dip our toe in the worldwide stage? And um, Southern Baptists, through their International Mission Board, have adopted what's called a, a Global Cities Initiative, where they're focusing on five cities worldwide and really honing resources and local church partnerships to um, take the gospel to those five cities. London is one of those. Um, I, I wish I could have done it at a different time. Uh, March was such a busy month for me, but as the Lord would have it, I ended up going. And, and my, my objective really was pretty simple, uh, to kind of familiarize myself with the um, spiritual climate in London as best I could over the course of a few days, meet with some people on the ground, and um, get some awareness of what local community looked like and, and begin to dream about what our involvement might be like. And, and I think God answered all those prayers. Um, and I want to share some of that with you because I think by the time we get to the end of my sharing, you'll see how great big of a task this really is. Um, so I've, I've uh, 
enlisted Steve back there on media to try really hard. It's a, be patient with him because he's going to try and follow me with some pictures and, and things that I say here. Um, go ahead, Steve, throw that up. This, this, is the, this is the city of London, southeastern uh, England, and the area in blue is the city of London. Now, London is uh, the third largest city in Europe, and behind Moscow and uh, Istanbul. And it's the 32nd largest city in the world. Um, it's estimated 2017 population is a little over 8.5 million people. It's a city that's made up of 33 different boroughs and communities. And that's kind of what I was targeting in on, was just to get a sense of how different the city was from one borough and community to another. And I only had three days, and quite honestly, I'm only one person, and I only move so fast, and, and, uh, and public transportation is what it is. So I wasn't Superman, but I did get to, uh, I did get to a few of these communities on the, on the tube uh, what they call the the underground, um, and that's that's the morning rush hour at uh, Victoria Station uh, in the area of Westminster. Um, and if you know anything about me, if you've known me for any period of time, you know that I don't like people near me. I don't like people touching me. I don't like strangers and their smells. I don't like anything really about that whole situation right here. Um, but that's where the Lord had me. And the funny thing is, I'm snapping this picture. And not a single person around me cared. Like, it's 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 funny. Um, uh, one of my favorite musical artists is a guy named Sting, and he wrote a song called "Message in a Bottle" one time. And uh, the whole idea of the song "Message in a Bottle" is that there are people that are surrounded by people, immersed in people, and they're constantly calling out for relationship. They're calling out for somebody to know them, to hear their story. Uh, and that's what I thought of. I mean. Here I am in London, it's the, you know, England, it's the home of Sting, but I'm standing in the subway station surrounded by all these people, and it's like all these people, and they are all alone at this very moment in this subway station, and all of them need Christ. So, so many people ride the, the underground and the overground in their ways to get around London um, and to get between these 33 different boroughs and communities. The tube has 270 different stops. I think I hit about eight of them. The, the goal of the uh, IMB in London and their GCI strategy is to see a church plant in every, at every tube stop. Not, every, you know, not right outside the door of the tube stop, but that community represents uh, a church planting opportunity. Um, and I love that philosophy. I want to give you some pictures of some of these communities. It, it may or not may may or may not strike anything to you, but uh, Westminster is where I was staying. Westminster is a pretty populous area. It's a, a common area. It's it's more central London. Uh, Westminster is um, where uh, Victoria Station is. Westminster is where uh, Parliament is. Westminster is where Westminster Abbey is. Uh, so. There's a lot of uh, business activity going on there, um, a lot of uh, social activity that's going on in the area of Westminster. That's uh, one of the entrances to Victoria Station um, in Westminster. Go ahead, Steve, throw up the next one. Um, this struck me as interesting. Okay, so I was blessed when I was there. You think of, uh, you think of 
you know, rain when you go to England. You think of London fog. You think of, I had the best weather. I mean, it really was pretty much mostly sunny and about 65 to 70 degrees when I was there. Um, so I was thankful for that. But it, it brought all these people out. So every so many blocks you see um, what is the, you know, cultural phenomena staple of pubs. Uh, this is one of those in Westminster. And every evening from like 4, 4.30 and that I noticed until, you know, I closed my window at night because the noise was so loud, people were in these pubs and they were outside these pubs. They were pouring out. And anytime you walk past a pub and you talk to somebody, somebody was immediately friendly to you and they would talk to you. And I went in and got fish and chips in a, a pub one night just to see what the environment was like. And just the coolest environment, wonderful people, warm people, very friendly, um, which caused me to think, you know, um, surely it is possible to build relationships to share the gospel, um, even if you're just going to have fish and chips uh, in a pub. So go ahead, um, Steve. Um, I woke up uh, the first full day that I was there and had no idea where I was to go, uh, but just began to look at the map and ask the Lord where he would have me. Um, and I took the... Uh, the underground to um, the west end of London to a community called East Acton. So it's not real difficult. There's West Acton, Acton, and there's East Acton. Um, I stopped at East Acton uh, just on a prayer and a whim to see what the community would like. I got off the tube stop, had no idea where I was going. Um, praise God for um, you know Google Maps. And started walking around and getting a feel for what the community looked like. This is sort of the, the central street area of East Acton. Um, Sorry, that particular day was really warm, and I think my, my lens got sweaty. Uh, but it's, So it's a little blurry. One thing I noticed about East Acton, so I stopped to have um, a, a cheeseburger in one of the shops there, and I uh, was talking to the guy who owned the place. In, in this is, and I mentioned this in my email this week. This is where it really struck me, something about London and its communities, is I went expecting to speak to everybody with a very traditional British accent, right? But what I learned was a lot of the people that I talked to did not have a traditional British accent. They had a Lebanese British accent. They had a Somali British accent. Um, any nationality you could think of, they were speaking as British residents, but they weren't from London. Uh, this guy who owned this shop, not from London. Everybody that worked with him, his, his, his mom was in the back uh, doing stocking and stuff, and I could see her back there, you know, and she had the, the headgear on. And um, the, the city of London and its, its boroughs are, are um, just teeming with immigrants. Uh, of that 8.5 million, I would have to believe that a massive percentage of those are people who are from other parts of the world, which would have to figure into the philosophy of reaching. Um, the other thing I learned is that a lot of these communities on the outskirts and in the inner city of London um, operate around greens, uh, what we would think of as you know central community parks. Um, that's where you would find the 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 that's where you'd find the football pitch. That's where you find they they had croquet, uh, not croquet. Um, yeah, uh, what's the thing where you roll the balls on the grass? What's that called? Bocce. Yeah, they have those different things. Anything you think of in these parks. That particular park in East Acton, um, the following Saturday, they were having a gardening club meeting in the park for all the women in the community to come and participate. So um, I had to think that part of any philosophy around reaching these communities would involve the um, central green opportunities that exist. Okay, go ahead, Steve. Um, this is a, sorry, 
I was explaining that. I told you, Steve. I told you. Um, Steve saw me put this picture up this morning, and his first, uh, his first response was like, man, what a face. Uh, so I, I wanted to get a picture of Center City, and, or the city center, and uh, this was at the tube stop called Bank, which is called Bank. Uh, when I got out, I quickly realized why it's called Bank. It is uh, just financial, people running around in suits, and Starbucks every five feet. Uh, I wanted to get, so my wife tells me, you know, don't ever travel and send me pictures unless you're in them. I don't want pictures of places, I want pictures of you. So this was me obliging her. (laughs) After I realized, I didn't get a picture of the city center without me in it. So the only way I could give you a picture was to put my ugly mug in it. City Center was like crazy busy, and then you go down from City Center a little bit, and you arrive at the Thames River. Uh, The Thames River is cool in that um, they have walkways that connect the different boroughs and runs all along the Thames, people running and and walking uh, all over the place. You can walk a great length of the Thames River uh, from one end of London to another if you wanted to. I thought I would try it uh, this particular day. Uh, I walked uh, 12.5 miles um, going around the city of London. So I got halfway from the Tower of London. I was going to walk back to Westminster on the Thames River Trail. I got halfway to Big Ben, and I said I just can't do it. So I got back on the subway. Um, I don't know why I put Big Ben in there, just because uh, when we associate London in our mind, this is one of the images that we think of. Um, Big Ben is connected to Parliament. That was the day... That was the day uh, that um, Great Britain made official their exit from uh, the European Union. It was the talk everywhere you went. Uh, on the streets, people were sitting in the pubs and they were, they were debating this back and forth. Um, and I had, a, I had a, a celebrity spotting moment, actually, uh, there outside. Uh, I came out of the railway station and there was a guy in a very nice suit. I mean, like an overly nice suit. I mean, he just looked pristine. He screamed out um, either celebrity or, or, or politician. It turned out to be the latter. Uh, he was greeting people, other people of similar ilk at the train station. Um, I go back uh, that evening, and I turn on the BBC, and I'm looking in my hotel room before I go out to dinner, and I'm looking at the news, and they're talking all about Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. And there they show a video recording of the Prime Minister um, speaking. She's speaking at Parliament that day. And over her shoulder, sitting behind her, is this dude that I just saw at the subway station. He's the um, what we would consider the uh, Treasury Secretary for um, the UK. Uh, so I'm like, man, that guy looks like he should be something important. I turn on the BBC, and sure enough, there he is. Uh, that Brexit thing, is gonna, it's going to shape a lot in... England over the course of the next two years. Uh, it's going to change the, it's going to mean a big shift uh, socially, culturally, legally. There's going to be a lot of opportunity that's going to come out of that. I just have to believe it. Go ahead, Steve. Um, next slide. My favorite community is this one. It's a community called Islington, um, kind of north of city center in London. Um, young, professional sort of community. Uh, it's um, 
Islington is, uh, well, let me give you some facts first because I think it will bring this whole community and why it was special to me into context. Um, I learned that London is sort of the epicenter of what a nation looks like that's hurtling towards post-Christianity. Post-Christianity means simply that you've moved beyond Christianity. Uh, it's a nation no longer in need, in their perspective, of anything having to do with Christianity, anything having to do with Christ, anything having to do with organized religion. Um, according to a May 2016 article in The Guardian, which is a... a a British rag, it says those claiming, those people in London claiming no religious affiliation, or as we would call them here, nuns, N-O-N-E-S, is rising to near 50% of the entire population. 50% of the people claim no religious affiliation. That gets worse. Compared to those claiming Christianity, claiming Christianity, which is dropping closer to 40% of the population but it gets worse. And of those 40%, they are not interested in anything resembling evangelical Christianity. Um, go ahead, Steve. Go through a few more of these slides. Um, Islington is adjacent to a community called Angel. They sort of blend in together, uh, kind of this young professional uh with a, a bit of an immigrant mix. The immigrant is everywhere you go in most respects in London. Go ahead, Steve. <clears throat> okay, so maybe you can make out here um, on this busy street, behind those trucks, you see a church bell tower, right? Uh, this church represents something significant to me. I just asked the question. We were walking to lunch. I was walking to lunch with... Um, the, the head of the IMB for the Global City Initiative in London, a guy named Jacob Boss, uh, one of his team members, a gal named Mariah, and uh, a local pastor of a church. Uh, his name is Pastor Nestor. Pastor Nestor is from Venezuela. Um, and we were going to lunch, and I stopped and I asked Pastor Nestor, I said, What's, uh, what church is this? Uh, what's their story? And he said, well, when I first came to London, uh, I decided to network with pastors, and I started going to uh, meetings to get to know them, and we were going to pray together, and I met the pastor of this particular church, and he said her name is blah, 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 and uh, she was very excited when I first met her because she was about to get married to her now wife, so and so and so. Well, that's, not the, that's not the bad part. Um, she said, or she, he said, he said, Pastor Larry, this church on a busy Sunday, he said a church that of cathedral-type quality that seats well over 300 people on a good Sunday is running 10. 10. He said, how do they survive? He said, it's just a, it's a shell game of money from you know the Anglican church and this and that and the next thing. Um, and he said, the sad thing was, I got there and I thought I was going to meet pastors with a liked heart for Christ, and that we could pray together, and he said that was the last time I went. Since then, God has provided a few other people in my life, but I can't really, I don't even have any real pastors of like heart and faith that I can pray with. See, Pastor Nestor came from Venezuela. He had met his wife. Uh, she was a Brit, 
they, he had served for a while in the north of England, and then this church that he's at in London, in Islington, called him to come as their pastor when they were running about five. But they knew that they needed to be about the gospel work. They wanted to be about evangelism. They wanted to be about making disciples and growing a healthy church. I can tell you, like this is just not happening in many places in the city of London. So few and far between are these evangelical churches. So over the course of three years, he's, gr- he's very proud of the fact he's grown the church to 35. And these 35 people are now asking, you know, how can we have a bigger impact in Islington? How can we have a bigger impact in Angel? And uh, the work is hard. And he's just, he said at lunch, just any help. If you have a couple people that want to come and teach a class, if you have a few people that want to do some survey work, if you have some people that want to do some prayer walking, if you have somebody that has any specialized skill, one of the things they offer is uh, uh, like a daytime um, play, you know, like a play group where moms can bring their children to the church and they set up toys. And he's like, we got 40 moms and children coming. Uh, a couple times a week to this thing. But we'd like to be able to build off that. So if people have any sort of skills that can help us to do that. Um, And Jacob said to me, he said how significant it would be if people decided that they wanted to take a season of their life, maybe three months, six months, a year, to go. And he said they would help get visas and you could go and you could teach English as a second language or you could work. He said they're desperate for people to work in the medical field. They have so many medical needs in London. You could get a decent paying job in London. They would, England would love for you to come in from the outside and work in the medical field. You could make a decent living and do the gospel work for a period of time uh, sharing Christ. But Pastor Nestor doesn't have the resources um, to do all this. These churches in England are suffering from liberal theology. You know, common, your, your heart sense says that if we just tell the people what they want to hear instead of the gospel truth, that then we'll draw a crowd. Then people will... London is living proof that that's not the case. All these churches have bankrupted themselves on liberal teaching and something other than the gospel. And if the average church is running 10 people, what does that tell you? The Anglican church is losing 12 people for every one coming in the door. The Catholic church is losing 10 people for every one coming in the door. And we know that's why. It's because they're not preaching the truth of God. They're not teaching what it means to be a follower of Christ. Here's a statistic that got me the most. That missionary worker Mariah I told you about, she's a millennial, and one of her main jobs is to target millennials in London. And she was laughing at lunch. She said, oh yeah, I ran into another person who didn't know me. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, sometimes I have conversations with people, and I tell them about why I'm here. I tell them about my faith in Christ. I share the gospel. And she said, I was doing this the other day and somebody, a millennial, overheard me talking to somebody and they interrupted our conversation and said, said, I've never met one. And she said, what do you mean I've never met one? And this 
millennial said to her, I've never met somebody who claims to know Jesus. And I'm like, are you for real? And she said, oh yeah. She said, are you, are you aware of the Barna statistic? I said, what Barna statistic? Well, that 96% of millennials in the city of London have never knowingly met a born-again Christian. 96% of the millennial generation in London claims to have never knowingly met a born-again Christian. Now you tell me, how is evangelism going to take place? How is, how is the gospel going to be rooted in a post-Christian society where 96% of the largest demographic claim to have never even met a born-again Christian? They're like novelties to these people. I think one key catalyst may be immigrants. The percentage of the white British population has dropped by nearly 20% in the last 30 years. While Islam is expected to overtake Christianity as a predominant religion in London in the next couple decades. There's a growing receptivity to the gospel message among non-British, non-white people. So, how do we as a worldwide church reach a city claiming approximately only 1.5% born-again Christians? I think it's being faithful to do what God calls us to do. Um, But I also think it's trusting in the scripture that we're about to read. When Jesus was getting ready to leave and go to the cross, and his disciples were confused and heartbroken, He says some very important words to them. Some of the most earth-shaking truth that we need to remember as Christians. He said, I'm going away, but I'm sending a helper. How do we do the hard work in a 1.5% born-again population city like London? How does a, a small church like ours even make a dent? How does... How do partnerships of churches reach a city so massive that's so post-Christian? And it starts with the Holy Spirit. Let's read it together, John 14. Two key texts in the Gospel of John that Jesus uses to highlight the work of the Holy Spirit. John 14, and then again in John 16. And I want to share both with you. Bear with me as you read both these texts. I promise you, you won't die from too much Bible. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is beginning in verse 12, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Greater works than what Jesus did, we're going to do. How easily we forget that. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Remember kids in Sunday school class when I was talking to you this morning. God doesn't just give you a helper. He puts his helper inside of you. What an amazing truth.
Verse 19. Oh, verse 18. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He said that twice, so that must be important. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Man, it must be important. That's the third time he said that. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Now bear with me, I'm going to read just a little bit more in John 16, because Jesus elaborates a little bit more on this helper, and he hones in with with a little more detail. Now listen to these words. Verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged I still have many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here's the question. As we consider a massive city like London, as you consider the challenges in your own life that you need to overcome, as you consider the people that you need to share Christ with personally, what kind of help is Christ offering here? What help does Christ promise to us? He uses this term multiple times. He says, helper. Jesus refers to this third person in the Trinity as the helper, the parakletos. Parakletos. It means the comforter, counselor, intercessor. In Greek, the word, the prefix uh, para means you know, come alongside of, adjacent to. 
saying, this is, this is God. I mean, what a, what a beautiful picture this is. These men are in the worst heart shape of their life. They are suffering miserably on the inside, and they're thinking of nothing but defeat in the midst of what Christ is telling him is going to happen here, that he's going to die, that he's going to leave them, and they're seeing their lives just sort of disintegrate, evaporate in front of them. And yet Jesus says, no, 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 it's better that I go. Because there's one who's coming, a helper, a parakletos, one who is going to be, it's a legal term, you know, it's what you think of when you think of your legal counselor, the person who's going to stand in on your behalf to make sure that you are justified, that you are, are well, that you're, the proper questions are answered the right way, that the truth is, is uh, rendered appropriately. The painful condition of these men's hearts, and Jesus tells them, ah, I'm sending you a comforter. Please know, this is a truly and exclusively high fact of Christianity. What other religion does God send Himself to indwell His people with? There is no such religion. The only true religion is that of Jesus Christ and His church. And what Christ does is He says, there are people who are going to follow Me. They're going to surrender their life to Me. They're going to trust in Me for salvation. They're going to believe in the blood work of the cross and the resurrection. And to those people, I promise that I will not leave them as orphans, but I'm going to take the third person of the Trinity. I'm going to take one co-equal with the Father, powerful in all truth and teaching and conviction and spirit, and I'm going to indwell My people with that person. And whatever you ask in my name, I'll keep it. I'll do it for you. And if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. This is significant. What does, the, what does Christ promise in the Holy Spirit? He promises first, point one, a Holy Spirit that convicts. He says the Holy Spirit will come and will convict the world. Convict the world in some specific things. But the word convict is a Greek word, elenko. It means to both convict and convince. The Holy Spirit first convicts a person. It pricks their heart as to their sinful state. It's impossible for a person to understand their sinfulness unless the Holy Spirit convict them. For a person to come in front of a church or for a person to tell a friend, yes, I'm a sinner, I believe that I fall short of God's glory, His standard, His mark, means that the Holy Spirit has done a work on that person's heart. So the Holy Spirit comes and convicts a person of sin. But then it doesn't convict the person, it then convinces by working into that person the truth of needed repentance. It just doesn't leave a person, this is great, God doesn't just leave a person in desperate straits with the idea that I'm a sinner, I'm unfixable, I'm unreconcilable, I'm unredeemable, but God then convinces that person of their need to repent of that sin. Jesus says here that the Holy Spirit will convict of sin because people miss God's mark and then will convince them of a need to believe in Jesus. He said, I will convict them, in, the Holy Spirit will come and will convict them of sin and convince them that they need to believe in Jesus. But then he says he'll, he'll convict them in righteousness. Jesus says here that the Holy Spirit will convict of righteousness. What does that mean? 
There comes a point in time in everybody's life where they realize that they are, uh, for everybody who turns to Christ, they must realize that they are not righteous. Scripture says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Not a single person in this world is righteous in God's eyes. Righteous, right standing in God's eyes. So the Holy Spirit has to come and convict a person of that fact. The Holy Spirit says, you're a sinner. I convict you of that. I convince you of the fact that you need to repent of that sin. The result of sin in your life, I convict you of the fact that you are unrighteous. But what does he convince them of? He convinces them of the fact that Jesus had to go to the Father in order to be our righteousness. Remember Jesus said, I, I convict them, the Holy Spirit will convict them of righteousness and that I need to go to the Father. That's what he's talking about. For the unrighteous, Christ died so that they might receive the righteousness of God. It was impossible for you or I to receive the righteousness of God. It's impossible for anybody in the city of London of 8.5 million people, 1.5% born again, of the other 98.5% of the population to ever realize that they are sinners, to ever realize that they're in a state of unrighteousness and that Jesus died to become their righteousness unless the Holy Spirit do a work. You and I need not fear about reaching our neighbor for Christ or reaching the city of London for Christ apart from the fact that the Holy Spirit is doing the heavy lifting. He's doing the lifting that you and I are are incapable of doing. There's comfort in that, isn't there? that I can't say something to my neighbor as I exclaim the gospel that the Holy Spirit can't instruct. That he goes before us in these endeavors. And then Jesus says here that the Holy Spirit will convict of judgment. What he's saying here is that he's going to convict us of the fact that yes, we're sinners, yes, we're unrighteous, and yes, our sin must be judged by a holy God. And that judgment is coming. But he also convinces us, convinces man, that Satan is defeated as a result of God's judgment. We're victorious in Christ. The Holy Spirit tells us that every day of our life, does he not? The Holy Spirit reminds me I've been sealed. I've been promised eternal life. There's nothing that Satan and there's nothing that sin in my life can do to steal away the promise of eternal security. I'm forgiven. God's pleased to forgive me. Even in the state of my unrighteousness and my sinfulness, the Holy Spirit convinces me that I no longer belong to the evil one, I no longer belong to the sin of this world, that we belong to Christ and that His righteousness is enough. If... You can't lose something that you couldn't earn in the first place. That's what the Holy Spirit keeps telling me every day of my life. When I stumble and I fall and I sin and I wrong somebody, or I constantly feel like every day I'm falling short of somebody's expectations, the Holy Spirit reminds me, indwelling in me, and reminding me that you are enough in Christ. You're good. Because Jesus is good, because He went to the Father on your behalf. And as I was writing this on the airplane, the the lyrics to the song by Chris Tomlin, Good, Good Father, kept coming to my mind, right? 
You're you, God. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm, my identity, I'm loved by you. That's who I am. That's who I am. You're good. I'm loved. Your identity is good. My identity is to be loved. That's what we need to remember. That's what the Holy Spirit reminds us of every single day. Now the second thing, quickly here, that Christ promises through the Holy Spirit is this. He promises not only a Holy Spirit that convicts, but a Holy Spirit that guides. This is my personal favorite. A Holy Spirit that guides. Guides into what? The Holy Spirit guides us into divine truth. Multiple times Christ said in these two texts about the fact that it's the Holy Spirit that leads us into truth. This word from Jesus also tells us that until the Holy Spirit arrives at Pentecost, until He, until he arrives at that Pentecost of your life, which is when you're born again and the Holy Spirit baptizes you and indwells you, until He arrives in a person's life, there's unbearable truth to them. There's truth to people who are outside of Christ that they're never going to comprehend, that they're not going to get, that's never going to make sense, apart from the teaching of the Holy Spirit. We as believers need to be okay with that. There's somebody across the fence post from you in your home. There's somebody that you work with. There's somebody in the city of London. There's somebody in a, in a city here in the United States of America that's never going to get truth because they reject the Holy Spirit. You don't need to convince them of truth. That should be freeing. We get so worried in doing evangelism that I'm going to say the wrong thing, I'm not going to be able to lead somebody to Christ, they're going to view me a certain way, or I'm going to fail God. The Holy Spirit does the convicting, the Holy Spirit does the teaching and guiding in truth. Ultimately, we know it's the Holy Spirit that teaches so much of what Jesus refers to in these two texts here has to do with teaching truth. The Holy Spirit is teaching in truth. Teaching to keep His commands. Teaches statutes. That which the Father has shared. The choice of word here by Jesus is telling. And it caused me to just ask the question for a good 20 minutes I dwelled on this one word. Just asking, why this word, God? The word is hadageo, and it means leading we're guiding somebody into truth. Why does God not just blast somebody with truth? Why did He say that the Holy Spirit will lead us into truth? Why does He not just say that God just slams us with truth? Simply imposing truth upon us. And there's something to be said, and I, I didn't get it, honestly, I didn't get a great answer to this. <laughs> but... I think part of it has to do with the fact that finding truth, when you personally find truth through the Holy Spirit as He reveals it to you, when you do that comes the peace of Christ given through the Holy Spirit. It's something that God reveals on His timetable. There's a, there's a teaching aspect to this. And when we think of liberal spiritually bankrupt, empty churches that once housed great teachers and hundreds of congregants, now running ten people. And we know that the teaching has to do with that. What's this 
The connection here is this. God only honors the teaching of truth. If there's no teaching of truth, the Holy Spirit's not moving. We have to honor the truth if we expect God to move in evangelism, if we expect God to move in the growth of a church, if we expect God to move in the expansion of the gospel in a community, if we expect God to move in a great awakening, if we expect God to build in revival into a body of people, it always starts with truth. If we try and teach the things that tickling that tickle people's ears what they want to hear and build a, a religion or a do- denomination or a church or a philosophy upon that, it's going to go bankrupt. The Holy Spirit's not a part of it. The Holy Spirit only deals in truth. Makes sense. We can't just say what people want to hear to draw a crowd. That's not a church. That's, that's a place. That's missing the Spirit of God. Lastly, what does Christ promise? He promises a Holy Spirit that glorifies. He said, The Helper is going to come, the Helper is going to convict, the Helper is going to guide people into truth, and the Holy Spirit is going to. I loved it. At the very end, he was very straightforward. He's Jesus, he has no problem saying this. The Holy Spirit is going to come, the Helper is going to come, and he's going to glorify me. Why is that so significant? The Holy Spirit's not going to glorify you and I. He's no interest, not interested in building a kingdom for you or for me. But He is interested in lifting up the name of Jesus Christ as equal with the Father. You see, the, the Son is glorified through the Holy Spirit in this way. That which is the Father's is the Son's. And Jesus said, that which is the Son's is declared to us in Him. So this begs the question, declares what? What is the Holy Spirit declaring that Christ is glorified in? This is what he's declaring. The reality is the beauty of the Trinity at work. Everything of the Father's is found in the Son. That's what Jesus said. And everything that is of the Father that belongs to the Son and makes them co-equal is what the Holy Spirit is declaring to us. So the Holy Spirit is teaching us and declaring to us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ is equal with the Father. There is no truth apart from Him. Everything that's to be found in Christ can be found in the Father and vice versa. And it's the Holy Spirit that declares this to the world and in it Jesus is glorified. So if there is a church that is worshiping some form of Jesus that is not the Jesus as the Son of God, that is not Jesus as co-equal with the Father, that's not the Jesus that is the, the second part of the Trinity, any church that's teaching any sort of deformed version or lessened version of that or corrupt version of that is not a church because the Holy Spirit's not in that. The Holy Spirit only teaches and solidifies and helps in ways that glorify Christ. Make sense? Yes. This is so key in who we are as Christianity, and it's, I just love teaching this stuff, and I'll tell you why, because many, many places are not doing it anymore. We can't kick this theological and doctrinal significant stuff to the curb. Christ felt this was so significant that it was one of the last things he instructed to his disciples. I'm going away. It's best that I do because the Holy Spirit is coming. Church, we have everything we need 
to be everything that Christ wants us to be? Are we sinful, weakened, misguided, miscalculating people at times? Not just at times, probably most of the time. But the beauty is that God has taken the Holy Spirit and now the Holy Spirit that is speaking into my heart and helping me communicate these truths is the same Holy Spirit that's living in you and is teaching you these things and His inflection and His tone and the way He's pricking your heart and He's rearranging truth and He's pushing furniture around in your heart to get you to where you need to be. It's this beautiful symphony that's working back and forth. And He wants to do that every day, every hour of our life to get us to where we need to be. And then when He gets us to where we need to be, He empowers us and goes before us so that we can be everything for Christ. There's nothing we can't do because He's given us the helper to do it. Now, is this, uh, as I close, is this an all-inclusive sermon on the Holy Spirit? Not by a long shot. There's so much. We didn't talk about gifts. We didn't talk about um, atoning. We didn't justification. I mean, there's so many aspects to the Holy Spirit that we could get into. Um, And someday we will. And we did a little bit when we went through the book of Acts. And we will again. But this is so significant. I have to believe that God has a place for us in London and God has a place for us in your neighbor's backyard. Because the Holy Spirit is going before us to do the work of the gospel. Let's allow him to do that. Pray with me if you would.